1: Due to the pandemic, please be advised that many of our Season 2 podcast recordings are being done remotely. Please forgive any internet interruptions or other sound variations that may occur. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm Dorothy Koshu, your host, and I'd like to welcome today Chris Brown, Director of Business Development of RX Benefits. Thanks, Chris, for being with me today to discuss prescription drug plan cost containment.
2: Thank you, Dorothy. Good to be here.
1: It's great. I really appreciate it. This is a really hot topic, always is. It doesn't matter, you know, what time of the year it is. It doesn't matter anything. One of the first things that employers look at when they're looking at their uh, overall uh, cost of their health plans, it generally has something to do with, with prescription drug costs. So I think this is a really important topic. Before we get started, can you tell us a bit about your background?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up as a kid uh, knowing that I was going to get into pharmacy benefit management, but, you know, life intervenes on you and and you take a job and, and it can lead to something interesting sometimes. And that's what happened to me. Uh, in the late 90s, I started working for an independent mail service pharmacy. And then that was actually ultimately sold to Walgreens, the retail stores. And I worked for their PBM for five years uh, then went over to Express Scripts, which is another large PBM for about five years there. And then actually pivoted to long-term care pharmacy, uh, which is a very interesting niche with lots of specialized packaging and delivery for you know very sick patients primarily. And then ultimately, um, I kind of came back to the, uh, what I would call the side of helping employers get a better deal. Uh, from their PBM, you know, versus working and selling a PBM. And I did that at Truveris for a few years and uh, came to Rx Benefits. So, you know, I've kind of served in a lot of different roles and kind of the, the much of the thread between them all is really looking at how do employers control costs. Mm-hmm. And what are the tools they can use?
1: Absolutely, I definitely didn't plan on starting in the insurance business for sure, but kind of fell into a job, and you know, right out of college, and uh, kind of stuck, yeah. <laughs> stuck with it after that. you, know, you, exactly. do, what you, you exactly, do what you have to Dorothy. do to sometimes to pay the bills. You know, <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> exactly, RX Benefits is not truly a PBM. Can you tell me exactly what RX Benefits is and how they can
2: provide cost-effective prescription drug options for employers? Yeah, you know, it's been interesting because um when when I if I had to really shorthand what we do, it sounds a lot like we're a PBM, but what we what we really call ourselves, because that's not quite accurate, and I'll sort of explain the difference. We call ourselves a pharmacy benefit optimizer. And and what I mean by that is, you know, the company was founded by people who understand the PBM business. have worked in conjunction with some of the nation's largest PBMs, but found places where maybe the alignment of the PBM in uh, seeking profits was not in alignment with the client and trying to control costs. And so we sort of constructed our business to kind of fix some of the things that we saw as broken in the incentive structure and align what we do more tightly with what benefits an employer or a plan sponsor, I should say. Um, Primarily employers, though. We work with some Taft-Hartley funds. We do that in three broad areas. One is using our knowledge and using the fact that we have three big PBM partnerships. We negotiate with them every year for all of our clients so we can kind of pit them against each other and apply consistent pressure to pull down rates we uh, feel like clinical is, you know, clinical is a place where having independent clinically rigorous really benefits the plan sponsor because those programs typically are branded drug programs, which drive rebates. And there's, there's some tangled economics because of the lives that we work with, the number of employers and all of their employees and dependents, we've pulled a lot of the PBM prior authorization programs away so that we can run them independent of the PBM. And that aligns us more with the plan sponsor. And then lastly, the, the other thing that we optimize is really the member service and we've built our, our own customer service center in Birmingham, Alabama. It's all virtual now with COVID, but we did that because we have human beings who answer the phone. There's no IVR. You get right to a person who can help you, and really provide good service, and and frankly, with a lot of care. Uh, the folks at Birmingham are just really nice people.
1: So you said that you work with a number of PBMs, three major PBMs. Can you tell us some of those that you work with?
2: Yeah, you know, and I, and I consider that one of the, you know, it's funny because I came to this firm uh, from kind of being a competitor when I was at Truveris, and as a, as a competitor, I respected the way RX Benefits it had created their business. And in in this context, what I mean by that is, so we have a relationship, a good contractual relationship with CVS. We have one with Optum and we have one with Express Scripts. And those are the three largest PBMs in the country. They control about 80% of the market share. So that means a couple of things for us as a business. There's a very good chance that we may have a contract with a PBM that they're already working with. So that makes the transition easier. And if our financials are better uh, as they typically are, it, it you know makes an easier conversation. Um, and then the other thing is that those large PBMs, because they are so big, they really have scale to get the best discounts from the retail pharmacies and invest in specialty pharmacy and efficient mail service as well as the best leverage against the large brand manufacturers. And I, w- I would offer a sort of evidentiary support for that statement that uh, I work up in the Pacific Northwest and Regents uh, is kind of the lo- one of the local blue plans that covers four states up here. They use Prime Therapeutics for their PBM. Well, Prime is a consortium of uh, 20 different blues plans that put all their buying power together and kind of built a PBM from scratch many years ago. Well, in December of last year, so this is 19, they entered into a three-year agreement with Express Scripts, really a competitor of theirs, to essentially piggyback on their rebate contracts and piggyback on their retail discounts and contracts.
1: So if an employer is currently with someone like Express Scripts like you mentioned or CVS they mm-hmm. can stay with Express Scripts or they could stay with CVS but use Arcs benefits to potentially save more than their current contracts is that what you're saying?
2: That that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, it's it's a new ID card. It will still have their logo on it, but it has a little bit of different information to make sure that the claim gets processed properly, but that member service and all of the reporting and the account management would come direct from us and not from Express Scripts, but kind of under the hood in terms of claims processing. So if you've got an Express Scripts client, you have mail service scripts, you have specialty scripts, you can move to our flavor of Express Scripts. You don't have to do anything to transfer them over because the vendor's not changing. It's more of a contract change than changing a PBM, We still do a full implementation. We still want to make sure that we have every I uh, dotted and T crossed in terms of making sure we port things properly, but it's a fairly easy process.
1: So in general, what types of provisions are in your contracts that allow for these additional savings?
2: I'll start at the high level by saying, I talked at the beginning about us as a pharmacy benefit optimizer, and I said, you know, we, we help get better deals with the big PBMs. How we do that is by aggregating the lives that we have. And we started this year with just over 2 million lives. We look like we're gonna end up somewhere between 2.4 and 2.5 million members getting prescriptions through us. So that allows us that, that buying power, kind of like a coalition really, we're aggregating buying power. And the fact that we have three partners that we can kind of use, uh, you know, put tension on those relationships to keep their pricing fresh because they know we have alternatives. It helps keep the pricing good. So that's sort of like at the strategic level, what does that mean for the client? One of the things I saw, um, and I think it's from um, the, something I learned at True when you get a contract from a PBM, they're going to promise you a set of discounts. And, uh, if you don't have an independent auditor or somebody watching out, you're going to have them self-report what they're, you know, whether they made their discount guarantee or they missed it. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing claims analysis at TrueBears, what we found was that for every claim we found where the PBM made an error and charged too little, so the plan benefited, we found 15 errors where they charged too much, and. And that was good evidence that their risk control was strong when, when they might lose money, but not so tight when they would make extra money. And so one of the things I like about what we do at RX Benefits is that all of our clients every single year get a substantiation and a report that shows what the contractual guarantee was and whether the PBM made it. And if they didn't, how much the client is owed for remediation of that overcharge. And so like that's, you know, it's not a direct savings per se, but being able to reinforce and enforce the contract that you have does ultimately lower costs for clients. We've hired uh, some ex-PBM people who really know the nitty gritty of contracts. And so as we renegotiate every year, they're always watching to make sure that as we increase the rebates that we're pulling through from the PBM, that they're not really putting in any kind of what I'll call tricky language. You might not understand, but it actually is gonna lower what rebates are paid. And I can give you some examples if you want, Dorothy, but that sort of having a cleaner contract really benefits the client as well.
1: Yeah, I know that for a fact, I know that we were investigating uh, and, and you know doing all kinds of research on different um, PBM options for our clients a few years back, and we came across RX Benefits, and we tried you with one of our clients, and again there was really good performance. So we moved some more of our clients over to you, and interestingly, the contract that we had set up was with, for example, this, these particular clients, um, a couple of more with Express Scripts, uh, and a direct, mm-hmm. a direct contract through Express Scripts and our third-party administrator that processes the clients' claims. And so we thought they were getting a pretty good, you know, discount arrangement, pretty good deals um, through that contract. Well, what we discovered very quickly was through your contract, there was additional savings. Interestingly enough, within about a year or two after we started moving some business, you know, kept it with the vendors they were with, like Express Scripts, but moved them Mm -hmm. to you guys there was additional savings so much that our third-party administrator then entered into a new contract with you guys because they like the way you performed better so I guess that says something I guess that that says something positive about uh, what you're doing uh, regarding these things and just you know to let people know that these contract provisions and and the terms that you offer a lot of it is just about buying power Uh, our third-party administrator they had good buying power but their block of business you know is their block of business that's not like yours it's comparing it to a block of business that's you know throughout the country and so i I think that has a lot to do with it as well because again you had a bigger block than our administrators so of course you could get better deals so the bottom line is who wins the client wins the employer that's paying for the cost of the prescription drugs so i just think it's kind of a win-win um, anyway, I didn't mean to ramble on about that. Uh, you provide, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you, yeah, you're saying, yeah, no, no problem. You're saying good things about us. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly, <Dorothy. laughs> you provide key metrics to help employers quantifiably measure their prescription performance. Can you tell us what those key metrics are?
2: So we watch a couple of different things, uh, when we're doing financial analyses, when we're watching the client's claim spend, uh, we're going to look at what utilization is, We're going to look at per member per month costs. We're going to look at per script costs, uh, as well as uh, trying to make sure that they're optimizing their plan for generic utilization. You know, if you're at 85%, there's probably some easy, low-hanging fruit savings you can get on the generic side. And it's funny to me because that was true. Uh, The numbers are different, but there was always opportunity back, you know, 25 years ago when I started And still, sometimes we see plans where they're really not uh, aggressively pushing generics as they could, and that's a very simple thing to do. Um, The other thing that we try and focus on as well, and these are the drugs that have really driven the pharmacy conversation over the last five to 10 years, and I'm speaking of specialty medications. Most of them are biotech, so they're created through some kind of a living process process versus a chemical process, which is what you have in kind of what we think of as pills um, and and kind of, you know, medications before insulin, which was the first biotech product actually back in the 80s. Uh, But those are the ones that are, you know, one to 2% of a plan's total number of prescriptions, so very small, but driving 50% of their total spend. And so they're ones that we pay a lot of attention to because if you have that many dollars concentrated in a very small piece, even a simple change on a prescription literally could save 50, 60, 100, $200,000 um, because of the, how much the drugs cost.
1: Yeah. And some of those drugs are ridiculously expensive. And we'll get more into, into that, of course.
2: No, no, they, they are. And it's, um, you know, when drugs are that expensive, you can't really say, well, let's raise the copay from 40 to $50. Like that, that isn't uh, the kind of solution that will deal with that problem. So you have to be more, you know, think of other things and be more creative.
1: Well, let's talk about lowering drug trends. Uh, You use a combination of step therapy, prior authorization, drug quantity management, and national preferred formularies, and perhaps other things that I'm not as familiar with to lower costs. Can you give us a little background on what this all means and how it brings costs down for employers?
2: Sure. When you get a good contract... So, when you get those good rebates and you get good discounts guaranteed from the PBM, you got to start there, you know, and that's going to be the foundation. But if somebody's taking a medication that is either clinically not appropriate or there's a cheaper alternative, even though you may have gotten a good price on that drug, there's something that is better that they could have taken from a financial and clinical perspective. And so to try and make sure that people don't get started on the wrong medications, they're called utilization management. And they're really, the goal is to make sure that you're steering people to quality medications that provide good value. So um, as an example, and I'm not a pharmacist, by the way, so I'm not trying to play one, but if you look at the disease state rheumatoid arthritis, There are a whole variety of drugs that treat rheumatoid arthritis from things as simple as naproxen or Advil ibuprofen to more like Humira that are a specialty drug. And so in some cases, it's appropriate to have somebody try and fail on a less effective medication potentially. And if it works for them, you stop them there. This is called step therapy. And if it doesn't, then they go on to a more expensive medication. But, you know, that's not something you do with an antibiotic, of course. But when somebody has a chronic disease and you're trying to manage it over the long term, you can kind of put some of those guardrails in there to make sure at least some of those other medications were tried before you go to the very expensive ones. And then there's other things like we see this a lot. They're not super expensive. But when when Ambien was a brand drug, and it's available as a generic now, You know, it's not designed for long term. It's not something that you're supposed to take every night for months and months to help you fall asleep. The goal of the drug and why it was approved by the FDA was to have you someone take it for a couple of weeks and then kind of get back into the rhythm of falling asleep and, and then stop taking it. And yet we'll still see prescriptions that are for more pills that a person should really need or that is clinically appropriate. And so we'll put a quantity on those. You might do that with inhalers. There's, there's lots of different ways, but you, you, ta- you tailor the limits to what makes sense for the medication.
1: Let's go back to the basics. You mentioned before generic drugs. Of course, we all know that generic drugs continue to be you know, one of the best ways to save costs overall. But tell us how and why that is. Let, let's talk more about generics in, in, in detail.
2: Yeah, you know, so generics are interesting because back in 1985, a law was passed by the federal government called the Hatch-Waxman Act. And what that allowed was a sort of a legal pathway for once a patent had expired on an original medication. And so I'll just use Prilosec, which was a you can still buy it at over the counter. But that was the the purple pill in the 90s -hmm. that was one of the first billion-dollar-a-year drugs.
1: The purple pill that no one even knew the name of the drug. They just knew it was called the purple pill.
2: It it was (laughs) called the purple pill. With a
1: great TV campaign, people had no idea what was wrong with them or if they needed that drug, but they would go to their doctor and say, can I have the purple pill? Yeah, I remember that drug very well.
2: (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was the number one drug for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so when that patent expired, the creation of the chemical that's in Prilosecomeprizol It's simply it's like you could give someone a recipe and if they mix the right ingredients together for the right time and at the right temperature, you can make the exact same copy. And so what a generic is, is really a equivalent drug. It's the same chemical. And when a manufacturer wants to bring it to market, they don't have to go prove that the chemical is safe and effective. That's already been done by Prilosex manufacturer. But the generic manufacturer just has to say, my omeprazole, which is the chemical name, is the same as Prilosec. And the FDA gives it a rating. It's called, the, they give it an AB rating if it's approved. And now, what that means is, unless the physician requests otherwise or the patient requests otherwise, that if a doc writes for a prescription for Prilosec, the pharmacy can frictionlessly transfer the prescription to the generic lower the cost they don't have to call the doctor they just can do it automatically save that member money and plan money and so if there's two suppliers well that's some competition but as time goes on and you get four five six seven eight nine ten suppliers of that exact same chemical and they all start pushing that price down that's what's made generic so powerful because Prilosec was a couple hundred dollars a month, and yeah. now you could go buy it at the store over the counter for 15 bucks for a right. month supply.
1: Right. Now, there are a couple of different types of generics. So there's exact generics, and then there's some that do the same thing but may not have exactly the same chemicals, correct?
2: One of the things that manufacturers do when they, they see generic competition coming is right before their patent expires, they say, oh, we've invented this extended release version can try and switch people to the, you know, the pill that you can take once and it slowly dissolves in your stomach versus taking a pill in the morning and the evening. And so in that case, you might have a generic for the pill that you have to have twice a day, and it would be relatively inexpensive, and then a very expensive branded product that you take once a day. So like, that's not exact equivalent, but the chemicals the same. And additionally, you have, um, I, I see this rarely, but a lot of times the, the chemical ingredient that's in a pill is teeny tiny, the actual number of molecules in the milligrams. And so, but, you know, a teeny tiny pill, you're not going to be able to pull it out of the bottle. So they'll add some inert agreements, uh, ingredients, starches and sugars to make it, you know, the pill a little bit bigger and maybe a dye to make it red or blue or yellow. Those ingredients can vary between. In fact, they will vary ac- across the different generic manufacturers. But those should be the only differences. Um, where where you do get to where I think you were going, I just wanted to cover the bases, Dorothy, is that on specialty medications where these are drugs that are done by a biotech process, a lot of times it's genetically engineered bacteria or cells that will kind of grow the protein that is uh, like Humira. Those medications don't have an exact copy And so they have what are called biosimilars, and we have very few of them on the market yet. But one hopes, and I see great promise over the next couple of years where those biosimilars will play the role of generics a little bit in the specialty pharmacy space and help push down pricing by competition.
1: How long do these patents usually last? Is there a variance between the patents?
2: Well, the, the patent is usually The patent original patent granted is is 17 years, but what happens is you can get extensions. And I mentioned one about you know creating a new um, a new sort of slightly different version of the capsule that maybe has longer lasting. If you look at the Humera ads on TV right now, they're talking about Humera citrate free which is just an ingredient that's in the injection. It makes it a little easier to inject, changing that. So it's a little bit less painful, I should say. Um, And and doing that change, they were able to eke out more patent life. And one of the things that I I sort of mentioned Humira, what they call a patent wall or a patent thicket. And what I mean by that is um, the original patents for Humira have already expired Mm -hmm. and biosimilar or, Uh, for biosimilars that are approved by the FDA and ready to go, but because there were so many secondary patents with Humair have been able to extend the period that they can sell it as a brand. And they ultimately, all of the manufacturers who wanted to offer biosimilars ultimately made kind of a deal where AbbVie let them sell in Europe and they agreed to not come to the US until 2023 and even when they do come to the U.S. selling their biosimilar version, they'll have to pay some licensing on the patents that they that are still existing on Humira. And it's frustrating because the the goal of having a biosimilar pathway, which came out of the the Obamacare Act in 2010, was really to make competition happen. And here we are, 10 years later, mm-hmm. and there's only a very few biosimilars on the market yet.
1: Yeah. Well, I know that there are times when a patient has to take a brand name drug because there is no generic available. When that occurs, yeah, what can, yeah and it, it does happen quite a bit. When that occurs, what can be done to help you know keep the cost down for the brand name drugs?
2: That's a toughie. Um, <laughs> That's it, why I asked know, it. it.
1: That's why I asked <laughs> it. You're more of an expert than I am.
2: Well, uh, so I, I guess what I would say on that, and, and a lot of the specialty drugs fall into that category where you know, there's not a generic treatment for a specialty drug. There may be other drugs that treat that disease, but they're just not clinically as good. You know, if, if you have advanced rheumatoid arthritis, ibuprofen just simply not going to be enough. In in a more powerful targeted medication like Humira, and there's others, um, would be just would do a better job for you. So things that we do uh, and work with our plan sponsors on are making sure that the plan design is appropriate. But, you know, as I talked about, you know, raising a copay from 40 to $50 will not save you a lot on a $5,000 drug like Humira. Right. So, um, that's not going to be a solution, but, uh, things you can do are, uh, get yourself as much as you can of the manufacturer money that's out there in the marketplace. And what I mean by that is, or, Humera to be on the formulary, say with Express Scripts, that's their list of preferred drugs. Humera is going to, or AbbVie is going to pay Express Scripts money for that position and kind of discount their drug with money coming through on the back end. So you want to make sure you're capturing as much of that as you can. And one of the things we do in that regard is we're not focusing on rebates. We use that word a lot in in conversationally because that's really what we're talking about. But in a contract, the word rebate means very specific parts of the money and a manufacturer will also pay manufacturer admin fees and other sources of revenue for the PBM. And so when we negotiate with them, we're not focused on getting all of the rebates because that's probably gonna be 80% of the money they collect. We're trying to get as close as we can to 100% of the money rebates plus everything else.
1: I know that one of the things that we do with our clients uh, on brand name drugs is we try to design the plans instead of using flat copays because as you're right, a difference between forty and fifty dollars isn't really going to change behavior at all. What we try to do is whenever possible, we use percentages instead of uh, percentage copays instead of flat dollar copays because you know when people have to pay fifty percent of a five thousand dollar drug they're going to think twice about it uh, and see if there's a, another drug, you know, biosimilar drug or a generic that's, that's available. So a lot of times we'll do that, especially in situations where, you know, there are generic options available, but they just choose, you know, to stay with the brand name. So we do that a lot with plan design. I know that's one of the things that we do. Um, does that,
2: is that. And it, I think, I think, I think that's great because when, when you make a copay structure where it's fixed dollar amounts, That's essentially what the member assigns as the value of the prescription they're getting. They think it costs $25 or they think it costs $35. And when you have a co-insurance, you're building a little more transparency into the system because their payment will vary. And I want to say it seems a little more real, you know, when you pay $17.11 or $6.32, You know, if you understand that, oh, that's 20% of the cost, they have a better understanding of what the plan is actually picking up out of that. Right. Whereas they never would if it was $10.
1: Right, exactly. Exactly. So, are there any other things that that you would recommend for, you know, uh, when this happens, when people continue to to, uh, use brand
2: names? That's where we get into an area. One of the things we do is something called high dollar claim review. And, and I think of it as kind of like a, a Swiss army knife of clinical tools because it's not looking for one thing. We take every claim that's over $1,000 per month and we dig in and many medications can treat more than one disease. And uh, there's no law in the U.S. that a doctor cannot prescribe something off label. It can't be advertised that way and promoted that way. But a doctor could take a drug that's for one condition that it's approved for and prescribe it for something else. And so that might not be a big deal if the drug's not very expensive, but if it's very expensive and there's no good evidence that it works, Mm -hmm. you might want to have a clinician look at that. And we have cases where we'll, you know, we'll catch that through high dollar claim review and we'll have that physician work with a peer physician to kind of see whether we think it's worth paying for. Mm Um, another one that we see is sometimes, and this is true of a couple of the new diabetes medications, I mean, treating diabetes is good value for a plan sponsor. If you can help people you know, stay healthy, there's good evidence on ROI, on spending money on diabetic medication, reduces overall costs in the system. However, some of the new diabetic medications, one of their side effects is that you lose weight. -hmm. And so there are times where we see a patient who doesn't have uh, chart notes for diabetes and they're getting a diabetic medication. We're going to call and contact that physician. You know, we'll see that drug. We'll reach out to them and try and make sure that at a bare minimum, the plan is paying for drugs that they should and, you know, and not paying for expensive drugs when they shouldn't. Mm And you know, it's not really that plans don't want to pay for life-saving medications; they just want to make sure they're paying for the right ones, right?
1: And, and they, they want yeah. And of course, that. they want it to be as cost-effective as possible. <laughs> that's, Absolutely, because bottom bottom line is money is money, uh, so that's important. Well, I know there are also manufacturer cost assistance programs that are out for these some of these uh, drugs. Um, is that something that people should take advantage of?
2: Absolutely, and and those you know those are like one of these. It's funny because pharmacy you can kind of at the big level, you look at brands and generics and specialty drugs. And as you start digging down and going deeper and deeper, there's all these little niches where, you know, you can do things to save money. And back in, you know, I would say back in the mid, uh, you know, the mid two thousands, as more and more plans started developing high deductible health plans, you know, the first age of consumer directed health. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happened to brand manufacturers was they saw that, people come in in January and they have been taking their drug all, let's say for a year, the plan design changes. And now the person goes to the pharmacy and finds out, wow, that drug's $285. And they had before been paying 25 mm-hmm. and they stopped taking it or they find something else. Mm-hmm. And so the manufacturers started saying, well, we need to help these people with their costs. And so they started offering coupons. I mean, we call them coupons, but they're really like a very targeted financial support to pick up the member cost share. Mm -hmm. And it was driven by high deductible health plans. But in my own experience, I was on a specialty medication at one point, the copay with United was $130. And when I was getting the prescription ordered, they said, hey, would you like the manufacturer program? And I said, sure. And they signed me up and I paid five bucks. (laughs) Instead of 130. Yeah, Yeah, it is. That's a big difference you want to put your plan design in to encourage good behavior. Um, and a coupon is sort of distorting the, um, distorting the decision-making process. Cause that makes now for me, a specialty drug as cheap or cheaper than a generic as right. a you know, as a pocketbook book for me. Um, so what we try and do with those and what we talk to our plan sponsors about is a couple of things. One is that $125 that I got in that example that ran through as a secondary claim and so to the pbm it kind of looks like i paid 130 bucks and if you've got an out of pocket max or a deductible you want to be able to capture that information and so you have to work with your pbm to make sure if somebody's using the coupon that you're really not giving them credit for spending their own money because you know if someone goes in cuz they have a baby they don't get a coupon to cover their hospital deductible right. you know like they have to pay that full price and all of our PBM offerings do this a little bit differently, um, whether you're with Express Scripts, CVS, or Optum. But the business problem they're trying to solve is the same. So that coupon that I mentioned where I paid, would have paid $130, and they picked up the, the manufacturer coupon, picked up 125 Now, that manufacturer didn't know what my copay was. So they load up dollars, notional dollars on this card, to cover all of my costs, save five bucks. And what happens is the manufacturer, say they put $20,000 on there. Well, each month in my case, I'm saving 125 by by 12. That's not close to the $20,000 that they would have been willing to give me. And so all of our PBM partners have programs where they can take that additional money that was in the coupon that I wasn't using because I was hitting my copay and take that money and return it back to the plan sponsor in terms of a deeper discount on the drug.
1: We talked a little bit about uh, specialty drugs, but uh, as we all know, they're astronomical uh, in cost. Yep. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a couple things, but is there any more information you can provide us that, you know, what can be done to contain costs with specialty drugs?
2: Well, if, if you if you have a plan that's not a high deductible health plan, I would absolutely recommend one of these coupon maximizer programs because essentially it's like getting a bigger rebate. And so if you have a plan sponsor that maybe their specialty co-pays $150, let's say, and you have a patient on Humira, that's about $5,000 a month. Depending on the PBM, you should get fifteen to seventeen hundred dollars back on that prescription. So let's say we're knocking it now down from five thousand dollars, we're down to thirty-three hundred dollars. If your copay is one hundred and fifty dollars, there's probably about another thousand dollars a month available in that coupon that you can reduce the liability. So instead of thirty-three hundred dollars, it would now be down to twenty-three hundred dollars how do people know about these coupons? How, I mean,
1: they just rely on the, the pharmacist to tell them about them. How, how can they find out more about
2: coupons? So uh, the coupons are always mentioned in advertising. Usually when you see a drug ad on TV at the very end, they, they mention something and, you know, now they talk about trouble with COVID and finances. Hey, you know, calls about our manufacturer program. And in any of these, at least the ones that are focused on specialty drugs, If you elect the program that the PBM offers, and CVS's program is called Prudent Rx, and then Express Scripts is Save on SP, Mm -hmm. they will actually sign the member up when they're ordering their specialty drug and make sure that they get the coupon that they qualify for. But I would say that in general, pharmacists would offer that anyway, but with the coupon maximizer program you're going to get more money back for the plan which you wouldn't otherwise
3: right
1: and right. it's
2: and it's money that's it's left on the table mm-hmm. you know because it's coming from the manufacturer so i think employers should if
1: nothing else be asking does this exist uh, do any of these high cost drugs is there a coupon manufacturer coupon or manufacturer assistance available for any of these things and when they're you know when they're re- reviewing their plans and, and taking a look at where all their costs are um, they can certainly ask right i mean it can't hurt to ask
2: no absolutely right
1: yeah for sure well we Heavily promote the use of mail order drugs for maintenance drugs. Uh, can you tell us ways to make the most of mail order programs? How to promote it and how to incentivize more, you know, more members to use mail order?
2: Well, there, I mean, there's always lots of different communication campaigns you can use in terms of letting people know. Um, you know, various communication vehicles, PDFs and emails and letters that you can send. Uh, you can offer financial incentives in terms of lower co-pays. And these are all the things that are, let's call those the soft dollar helping because you're encouraging people, but you're not forcing. Mm-hmm. And then all the PBMs that we work with have, as we're talking about, and this is, you heard me at the beginning, this is how I got into the business was an independent mail service pharmacy. And you're not filling antibiotics, you're filling long-term medications. After a couple of fills at retail, so the patient gets in there and they- try the medication, sort of make sure it works, then they're encouraged and contacted to move to mail service. Um, And so that's one way to do it. It's a little smoother. And it also, you know, that first 30-day supply, maybe it upsets their stomach and they switch to another drug. So maybe you don't want to start at mail. Another alternative that has really gained currency Is and I know our plan uh, at RX Benefits has this because I utilize it. Is getting a 90-day supply at retail. Yes, yeah, we do that. We we do
1: that with all of our clients. Yeah, that way it's it's because it's kind of a no-brainer when you're explaining it to employees. Well, you can get. You can go to the retail pharmacy and you can, you know, pay your full copay and get one month supply, 30-day supply, or you can pay one copay and get a 90-day supply. So it's three months for the cost of one. So, you know, that tends to make people pay attention a little bit. And we've also, in our in our plans, our clients, uh, a lot of them actually have mandatory mail order uh, for maintenance drugs. You know, they can have their first yep. two, two fills in the pharmacy, and after that, they must switch over. And I don't know, you know, if other employers are doing that or not, but it's worked really really well with our clients.
2: Yeah, you know, and people would once they try mail service, they tend to like it, and and we saw a real uptick this uh, in 2020 in in March, where people were like, I don't want to go to the pharmacy. Exactly, the last place, the last place I
1: want to go is to, you know, the two places you don't want to go: emergency room and a pharmacy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I know. So yeah, more and more people are saying, okay, uh, about that about that mail order program, um, can we do that now?
2: I like that you offer the. You know, and and let people have 90 day retail, um, but strongly encourage mail. One of the things that's sort of a secondary benefit of the longer day supply is that people tend to stay more adherent to their therapy when they're on a longer day supply. Meaning that, like, you don't, if you're on a 30 day pill, you might forget, or 30 day supply, you might forget to get into the pharmacy and pick it up for a week because you're busy. And that happens less often at mail because you have a longer supply. And so there's fewer sort of break, um, you know, continuity of care break points. And adherence is a real challenge in the U.S. So if you're going to spend money on a medication, you want to, you know, increase the chances the patient's taking it properly and getting the benefit, which is often lower cost somewhere else in the system that the plan benefits from.
1: Is it possible to set it up that they have to send something in to continue that maintenance medication, you know, more than one time? Or is it, can it be automatic where they know they're on a long-term maintenance drug uh, and just every, you know, every couple of months, every two or three months, it's, uh, it's mailed to their home? I mean, is, can it be automatic or does it have to be, does the employee or the, you know, the participant in the plan have to actively do something uh, every couple of months to make sure that keeps coming?
2: I, uh, most of the, the the plans are really designed around informing the member actively that their prescription is going to expire and having them reorder. Because the, the countervailing argument, Dorothy, to your point about, well, you know, just why not resend it automatically? I mean, I set up my Amazon, you know, to send me coffee, you know, three bags of coffee every <laughs> two months. So let's just have that happen, whether I tell them to or not. Mm-hmm. The problem in some states, you know, the the member has to make a request for the medication. Mm-hmm. It's a pharmacy reg. And so sending it automatically when they didn't actively say, I want it this time, there can be issues there. And then the other, and I think we've all experienced this when you, you know, you see a cool new app or your kid says, hey, I want to try this thing out. And you say, yeah, I'll sign you up. And the first month is free, but you had to enter your credit card and you can certainly cancel. But then you forget. Uh And then you get your credit card statement, you're like, oh, wait, I spent 10 bucks on this thing. I'll go cancel it. Uh That's what can happen with, you know, the automatic thing. We're like, oh, I've switched medications. I don't need this one anymore and it's wasted money well it's also wasted drugs too we don't want people to keep taking drugs if they don't need
1: to be taking the drugs i'd rather they they go into the you know doctor again and say uh no your situation has improved you no longer need to be on this medication so or we need to change it up a little bit so if it just keeps coming and i just brought that up i mean i kind of knew what your response would be to that uh, obviously but i wanted people to hear it from you because you're the expert and not just me preaching so um (laughs) but i think it's it's important that people understand
2: That's a good point, for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, PBMs and other prescription drug vendors talk of, you know, a lot of terminology that sometimes employers may not understand. But there are a couple of things that I think that maybe they might want to understand. Can you tell us about low clinical value and high dollar claim review and what options there are and and how that helps to lower costs?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, So I'll start with high dollar claim review, which is, Simply this idea that if you're going to spend above a certain threshold, and in our case, it's $1,000 dollars per month or 3000 dollars for a 90 day supply, that because of the cost of that prescription, it should get a little bit more scrutiny. And it's not uh, and, and you're looking for a lot of different things. It could be off label use. It could be a, you know, I mentioned earlier, diabetic drugs, that can be used for weight loss. We see prescriptions sometimes, and this is something that's called parity pricing. Let's say you have a uh, a molecule that comes in pill sizes of one milligram, two milligram, and four milligram. There are a few medications, expensive ones, where those three pills at different strengths cost the exact same amount. So... If you get a two milligram pill, it costs the same as buying a one milligram pill. Hmm. And in some cases, the physician will start, maybe that patient's on the one milligram and then, you know, they're on it and they decide to titrate it up and they switch them to two milligrams a day, but they switch them to two one milligram pills. So they're doubling the cost and by paying attention and saying, wait a minute, we could actually, with the physician consent, contact them and say, would it be OK for this patient to take a single two milligram pill versus two one milligram pills? And if they agree, that's just cut the cost in half. And those are you know, the kind of artifacts that you see in pricing, not everywhere, but those are the kinds of things that we're looking for in high dollar claim review to really make sure money is being spent in the most prudent um, way that it can be. And the other one that you mentioned, the low clinical value, these are drugs that when I'm talking to plan sponsors and, and benefits consultants and brokers about them in general, I call them junk drugs. Mm-hmm. And these are medications where the clinical benefit is marginal or it might not even exist. It might just be a convenience. And yet the price is bears no uh, relation to how much better they are. And why I say that is, there's a drug called Duexis, and I believe it's ibuprofen and Pepsid. The molecules of those two drugs. It's the generics, and those are both available over the, the counter. counter. Yeah, For, yeah <laughs> at twenty-five bucks a month, you can get those, and you have to take two pills, but you can get this clinical benefit, you know, as you uh, reduction of inflammation and then protection from your stomach from the ibuprofen. When you put them into a single pill, $25 a month, it's about $1,000 a month. Wow. <laughs> and it's the exact same stuff. Well, I don't think that's worth $975.
1: Uh, not, and, not if
2: it were my plan,
1: not if I were paying for it.
2: <laughs> right. Well, exactly. And, and where, where we feel like we optimize is that if we use that drug as an example, The pharmacy's happy to, you know, they make money on the fill. So they're not really going to necessarily raise their hand and say, don't do this. The physician doesn't care. You know, they're not bearing the impact of the cost. They say, well, hey, they don't know how much it is. And it's one pill instead of two. That seems to make sense. They're probably keeping a large rebate on that. So they're not really necessarily incented to block it. And that's the role where we come in because we don't make money on rebates. And so we take those drugs like Duexis. And there are others where the clinical benefit is poor, and we say we're just simply removing them from the formulary, and making sure that the plan doesn't pay for them right. because they're not appropriate uses of dollars.
1: Right. So you have you have a couple of programs, don't you, uh, about these clinical, I think something, Clinical Advantage Program and Super Advantage Plus. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about the names, yeah, but well, can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so we, what we package up, we call them the, the Clinical Advantage Program, or CAP. And there's different elements to it. One of them are the coupons that we talked about earlier. Uh, another element is the high dollar claim review, which I just spoke about. And then there's the low clinical value drug exclusions that I just mentioned you know, 30 seconds ago. Those are all part of our cap package. and there's, you know, t- low, medium, and high in terms of whether you have step therapy or not might be the difference between, say, medium and high, or the number of drugs you're putting quantity limits on or prior authorizations. So part of our job is to work with you, Dorothy, and the plan sponsor to kind of figure out the right mix for each individual employer. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. those I, We've actually, you know, obviously had some experience with this and those packages have actually worked pretty well for our clients. So I just wanted to bring them up yeah. because it is, they, they, do work, they do really work. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned this before a little bit, but I want to come back to it because it's really important. Communication to members can, you know, positively affect cost savings. Can you give us some examples of how you can communicate with members and, you know, how do we educate them? What's the best way to do it?
2: it it's a constant challenge because you want to reach people at the right time, um, but we're always, as, as individuals in our society today, we're always, you know, bombarded by emails and junk mail in the mailbox. So you have to be smart about how you do it. Um, you know, good, strong communications, open enrollment, encouraging people to use the digital tools that the PBMs offer. You know, the partners that we have have built incredibly good resources from apps that you can put on your phone, as well as. The digital presence and the member experience is a good one in the PBMs that we work with. And getting people to use those tools is a really good way to help make people aware of their benefit. You can send out letters, and we certainly do. We try and make our communications really targeted to that person so that we're not just sending out kind of a a PDF about something that's really not very relevant to except for a small subset of people.
1: Do you recommend, um, you know, hard copy, you know, mail stuffers? I mean, payroll stuffers, that sort of thing, at all?
2: It it never can hurt. It's that challenge of making sure you get that message to the right person at the right time.
1: Yeah, because we, so, what, we, what we've seen in our what we've seen in our uh, groups is that there are some populations that really like the digital. The millennials really, the millennials really yeah. love the digital stuff. But if you've got an older population, uh, they're not as into that. They want to see a payroll stuffer, or they want to hear about it in an open enrollment meeting or an educational meeting throughout the year, or something like that. So I think it really really depends on your population. I think you're absolutely right about that because we that's what we try to do. We try to you know. Tune into what it is that particular group, you know, where we, where we have the most beneficial you know, correspondence and, and where we can see them really actively participating and asking questions and that sort of thing. And and with time, you know, you get to know the groups well enough and you know that. Uh, if it's a brand new group, you might take a little while to figure that sort of thing out. But, right. Um, but, yeah, it's not a bad well, idea. It's not a bad well, idea. Well, and that's where
2: we want to be a good listener to you because we, even when even when it might be a new client to us, it's not a new client to you, and so you're going to know some of the things.
1: Exactly. And even if if a broker consultant has a new client themselves, I think for me, one of the first things I do is talk to the employer and the contacts and human resources and the CFOs and whoever's involved with us and just ask them, you know, you know your population better than we do. We're new here. Um, is this been effective? Has that been effective? And, and sometimes just a simple ask, you know, and you get all kinds of great information. <laughs> so you can, you can figure that out. So I think sometimes people get too involved with the sale and that sort of thing, and they don't get into the specifics of, you know, what it is that they can do to help that specific client. So I, I do that right from the beginning so that we get a better feel for, you know, as time goes on, we all learn, but you know, at the beginning, it's, it's better to jump start by, you know, just asking the questions and, and getting really good answers and figuring out what's the best way to communicate. Anyway, that's, That's always been my philosophy anyway. Uh, Let's turn this a little bit to something else that's very important because I think a lot of times, unfortunately, sometimes employers don't look at the reports that are sent out to them. Um, So what we do, I know on our groups, is we actually have a sit-down meeting with them to go through them because then they're kind of forced to go through it with us because after all, especially if they're self-insured, those are their claims dollars and we think it's really important to understand those reports and what they mean. And sometimes we find out very serious things by going through those reports that can really, really impact an employer. So I want to point out reports uh, and some of the things that we can be looking for in an organization, uh, certain types of usage and so forth, such as, you know, big thing right now is high opioid use. Uh, We've been, Mm -hmm. you know, we've had that happen from time to time, especially recently. We've had, you know, clients that had no idea that they had such high opioid use. And then we show them these reports and say, this is your population and look what we're seeing. Look at these trends that we're seeing. Sometimes employers don't want to think about the fact that their population might have, you know, strong opioid use or any type of situation like that. Can you tell us, you know, how you determine if this is a problem within an employer population? And if so, what can be done to assist them?
2: Sure. Um, Well, always in pharmacy, the claims are going to kind of tell the story and you need a good toolkit to sort of pull that story out of the raw data in the claims. And I think, you know, we, as I would say, Going back historically, I don't mean today, but I'm saying 10 and 15 years ago, when I first started to see more and more claims uh, for opioids, and I remember there was a plan I was working with in Central California, and there was this... uh, it was the first time I'd ever heard of fentanyl and it was this lollipop that, you know, sometimes people have trouble swallowing when they're in tough chemotherapy and a lot of pain. And so they there was this, you know, this very strong opiate that was put into a lollipop so you could kind of suck on it. And there was this one patient who was taking tons and tons of them and they were expensive. And I think PBMs were a little slower than they could have been at building some logic because they were processing the claims. And so all of the PBMs that we work with, particularly in the opiate category, have lots of multi layers of defense to look at the number of pills, the number of prescribers, the day supply. And as a country, we've got, we've definitely over the last five years become much more, um, we've recognized much more how broad this problem is. And, and so really teasing out those places where there might start to be some abuse going on and all of our PBMs, the basic clinical package has some very strong opioid protection programs. But we really encourage buying up to ones where there's more intervention and support for the patient, working with the prescriber, working with the pharmacy. And it's, you know it's a really thorny problem in our country. And I I kind of worry a little bit um, because it had started, we started to get a little bit of a handle on it the last year or two. And then now with COVID and just much more stress and people being locked down, there's some concern that 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 might resurge a little bit, which is very unfortunate, obviously.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, you have um, something called your advanced opioid management program. Can you tell us a little bit about those options and how that might uh, help in these situations?
2: Yeah, so it you know it contains a couple of different things, uh, and it, and it's a little bit of a, a different mix, which uh, PBM you're working with us. Um, but you know we'll provide alerts at the doctor's office for medication dosing and monitoring, at the pharmacy there's going to be quantity limits typically and prior authorizations. Uh, as well as day supply. Well, I mean, one nice thing in the US, you know, uh, an opiate prescription, you cannot refill it. So you know it has to be a new copy coming from the doctor. Um, and then other things that we do are, uh, we have those edits where we're watching the claims that are coming in and what's happened historically, the number of physicians that are prescribing, we're gonna do letters to the member. Um, and, and these things are all uh, implemented automatically. And the enhanced levels do a uh, special investigation. Uh, they can lock out a pharmacy. We can get a toolkit to the prescriber to alert them and, and even doing peer review on what they're prescribing. Because I think, you know, in some cases you have patients where, you know, you definitely have patients who doctor shop and go around and go into the ER and they're kind of trying to work their way through the system. You also have people that they get an injury, they you know get in a bike accident, they break their leg when they're out skiing, and then they get on an opiate and, and it just stays. And so those are places where we want to try and help and make sure people get help before it gets to be a serious problem.
1: Yeah. You mentioned this before, so I want to bring it back up. Let's talk rebates. I know that one of the primary reasons that we move some of our self-funded clients from direct contracts with a PBM to RX benefits was the ability to offer rebates back to the employer. We feel that if there's a rebate, the money should go back to the person who paid for it, which is, again, in a self-funded employer situation, it's the employer. Can you tell us about how your employer rebate program
2: works? So manufacturer rebates are a key place where a plan sponsor has to help recover that money from either the PBM or from the brand manufacturer. And when we look at a claims data set for a client or potential client, we normally expect to find somewhere between 25 and 30% of what they're spending on drugs should be coming back in the form of a rebate just as a broad number. So that's a pretty big piece, you know, so if we see a group that's spending a million dollars a year on drugs, that's what they're paying with invoices and member contribution. There should be about 250 to $300,000 a year coming back to the plan sponsor and rebates. Now how those rebates show up is let's just take a plan that starts January 1st. So during the first quarter, people are taking prescriptions Specialty drugs and and branded drugs at retail and mail are the ones that generate rebates. The rebates are going to be the quarter ends, all of the analytical work that the PBM and the manufacturer do to figure out what claims qualify um, and what claims don't. Our client should get a big credit on their invoice for those rebates. It's lined out as a credit. And we do talk at each quarterly meeting about projecting what we expect rebates to be based on the claims that were dispensed. And so we provide kind of that ongoing check. Um, But you really want to make sure you're getting that money back and as much of it as you can. And one of the things I learned this year, and I, I bring this up because It it came up as an internal question where we came across a contract. One of the provisions, because when you're getting a rebate, say on a specialty drug of, say, it's $1,600 per specialty fill, you want to know how many fills that you're going to, you know, did I have 10 specialty drugs and I get $16,000? Or did I have 20? Mm -hmm. Did I get $32,000? In this contract, we came across not in the rebate exclusions. There was another provision that said, Rebates were paid only on claims where the plan has liability. What that meant was for a high deductible health plan where you've got maybe a member paying the full cost of the drug on their first fill, they wouldn't get the plan, wouldn't get that $1,600 rebate anymore. And Express Scripts would be keeping that money. So, those are the kinds of little tricks I would call them tricks, Um, clever contractual provisions, maybe uh, that the PBMs try and put in and that we consistently work to weed out so that we can really show your plans what they're spending money on and how much they should get back.
1: So they're getting an invoice. You can see all the dollar amounts in the particular months that you guys are getting the, giving the rebates back. So they're getting an invoice for the drug charges, um, and then there's a credit item on there, and then there's a net, so they pay the net. So it's not like they're getting a check in the mail. They're getting nope. a reduction from their prescription uh, bill that month. Yeah, that's want, right. I just want to make sure that people are aware of that. So that's one of the things that you know we always make sure to bring up in our meetings with our clients is go over those reports with them because if you don't show it to them, they may not realize that that was actually a rebate. They just saw that their, you know, wow, our prescription drug, as you mentioned, our, our usage was lower this this time. That's great. No, it was it was the same, <laughs> but it was reduced by X number of dollars because right. of the rebate. That-
2: <laughs> It's important you want to call that out because otherwise they might just think it was a low claims month. Well, right. it was a low claims month because you got rebates that right. were negotiated back right. and you got a credit. So credit
1: that's for one thing as, as, as a broker consultant, that's one thing that I always like to point out to them. Those, Hey, no, this is the rebate that we got you. <laughs> so your drugs were the same cost. Absolutely. But, but this is something that came back. And when they see that, you see the smile on their face. Oh, I didn't realize that. So you can say so far this year, so far since we've been with this contract, you've received this amount back in rebates. Uh, Rebates, so you know your overall cost of the prescription portion of your plan has been you know this much less. So when they see that and you know absolutely (laughs) pointed out to them, like I said, that's when we see smiles, and we like to see smiles, so it's a good thing.
2: (laughs) For sure, for for sure. sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about you know what you would do because. You're, you're an expert. You're a lot more of an expert than I am on, on pharmacy benefit plans. So if you were a CFO of a company and you basically said to your HR manager and your broker consultant, you said, design a plan for me for my company. If you were sitting in that spot and you had to design the plan, given all your experience, tell us how you design it, if you wouldn't mind, sharing all your secrets. <laughs> I'm asking you to share secrets. <laughs> um, what, what cost no I can I can't, It can't hurt to ask. What cost containment provisions would you put in, you know, if you could, if that, you know, what's your ideal prescription drug plan going to look like?
2: Well, uh, there's a lot of different pieces. And, and one of them that I'm so glad you brought it up at the beginning because it's one that I would definitely recommend is the coinsurance. Now, maybe you put a guardrail on what the, you know, the upper bound of the coinsurance is. Like say it's twenty percent across all drugs, but the upper bound for an individual prescription is five hundred dollars or something, because otherwise you have a specialty drug and twenty percent of five thousand is a thousand bucks, which is a lot for an employee. Right. So, but having that co insurance with maybe a minimum and a maximum because you also don't want people paying 32 cents for a month of generic supply. That's too cheap, frankly. Right. Um, So I would do co-insurance, you know, better for consumerism, helps people be aware of the costs and scales their contribution, uh, at least in a guided way to how much the drug costs. So I would put that in for sure. I would absolutely leverage every program I could to make sure manufacturer dollars are being recovered if they can be, And that's really the coupon programs we talked about Mm -hmm. uh, because that's free money, essentially. You know, the manufacturer, if they could find a way to block plan sponsors from getting those dollars, they would. Um, But, you know, it's a lot of money that you can grab onto. I would fully recommend the low clinical value list because there are a lot of junk drugs out there that end up. They certainly do what's promised but they have a cost totally disproportionate to what their value is. And it's a market failure ultimately. And so having, you know, just basically weeding those out with strong clinical programs, I would absolutely do that. And then the other thing that I do, um, because we, we have to be careful. The other thing I would do is I would do a pretty expansive list of preventative medications Um, Because we have we have a chronic disease challenge in this country with diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease and having people take generic Lipitor at ten dollars a month. There is real ROI in avoiding heart attacks and heart events. And so while drug prices are a problem, we should remember that in lots of cases part of the reason we want the person taking the drug is to avoid something worse that costs even more. And so I would definitely avail myself of some of the ACA lists or the preventative lists that the PBMs have to make sure you're paying for the stuff that's good bang for the buck. Right,
3: right.
1: Well, that's this has all been really great information. I want to thank you very, very much for all this. It's been, you know, if someone's really paying attention to this, they're going to learn a lot from this, and hopefully they'll implement some of these ideas into their into their RX plan. So, if someone Thanks, wants, Dorothy. oh, you're welcome. So, if someone wants to reach out to you and to someone at uh, RX Benefits, how would they how would they contact you?
2: Well, you, if you went to rxbenefits.com, we make it very easy to contact us, and I don't think you'd find me, but it would find its way to me, or uh, my email address is cbrown at rxbenefits.com. Dorothy, thank you for the conversation, and thank you for listening. I have been in benefits a long time, and I really do like helping plan sponsors make sure they spend their money well, because drugs are expensive anyway you slice it. They very much are.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much, Chris, and to everybody listening, please stay safe, stay healthy, and everyone, take care.
0: Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.